What's going on, everybody? This is Ryan Henry, and welcome to 180, where we get to share amazing stories of Christian transformation from around the world. These stories will literally blow your mind. Follow us on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us at 180podcast.com. That's O-N-E-80podcast.com. The 180 you're about to hear is incredible, but incredibly all true. Please listen in. I ask Allah to forgive me for reading a Bible. Then I pick up two handkerchiefs because I didn't want to touch a Bible. And I just took it up and like touching something dirty, used the handkerchief to open a Bible. And then I opened the page. The first thing I read was John 4. Wow. Can you imagine sitting on your grandfather's lap as you learn stories about your faith, where you're from, and how to face the perils of the world? What if you were from another part of the world hearing stories from another faith? For Mahmoud, grandfather was none other than the Ayatollah. Raised in one of the most notorious theocracies, Mahmoud cherished the faith he was raised in. He even reignited his zeal for Islam with a newfound pledge to rid his country of Christians. But when he entered a church to torment its Christ followers, God got a hold of Mahmoud and took his zeal for Islam and hyped it, boosted it, supersized it with an unending commitment to a new cause, Jesus Christ. You won't want to miss today's 180. Welcome, friends. I'm Thomas Egler, guest host of 180. I'm filling in for Ryan today. We're so excited to have you tune in to hear today's show. Thank you, Mahmoud, for joining us today to share your amazing story. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I definitely want to jump into your story. Tell me, what was your family life like growing up? Well, I came from quite a big family. I was the oldest son and first son, actually, first born in my family. My mother's side family, they are very religious family, it goes back to generation and generation of Ayatollah and Muslim priest, Mufti and Imam, very respectful. And in a city, we have three mosques just in our city under our family's name, and other cities also, they have a mosque. Basically, very traditional family and very religious family. My father was bit different. My father was more towards the Sufism, which again is a part of the Islam, but more spiritual than the side of the Islam. I came from north of the Iran. And tell me what it was like growing up with the Ayatollah, such a powerful and prestigious family. Well, as I said, I was the first born, the first son in a family. As soon as I born, decision was made. I'm going to follow my grandfather's footstep and one day become Ayatollah. Wow. The first thing I remember about knowing about the God, the conversation about God was when all my family got together, the men's the family, my uncles, my grandfather, then the old, then a big gathering. And my oldest uncle, which again, he was like a priest, Muslim priest, imam. He called me in the middle and then he's got to hold my hand and he took a lighter and burned my hand. And I pulled it out and started crying. And he said to me, 
hell is one million hotter than this, and it's one million more painful than this. If you do anything to upset Allah, not just you, every one of us will go to hell because of you. Hmm. That's my first experience about God and religion. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads me to my next question. What was your view of God as you were growing up, and how did you live out your Muslim faith after that? Like a lot of Muslim, I tried to keep a God away from me and my family. So I'm not to please him to make sure he doesn't harm us or harm my family. And that was, and that is the most of the thinking of the Muslim because we are so scared of him. And we are so scared of the hell. And it's not just for us. Sometimes you don't mind to get punishment for right thinking. But when it comes to your family to be punished for you, it is much harder. And I was scared of him. That's why I tried to please him. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that coming from that type of perspective, I could imagine it affecting a lot of your choices, a lot of your, you know, just how you lived your day to day. That's tough. Tell me a little bit about your view on Christianity or even about Jesus as you're growing up. Well, in Islam, Jesus is a very holy prophet. Well, one of the most important prophets by Christianity. I just give you an example. When we were kids, we have a lot of ants, red ant and black ant. And they told us, you know, the red ant, they are Christian. We used to pour it in the petrol and burn them down because they were an enemy and they go all to the hell because they don't accept Muhammad as a prophet. Wow. And from the kids, we learned, you know, since very young age, we learned to hate Christians and hate especially Jews. They were not people which we like. And thanks God, we are not like them. Wow. Okay, so then as you grew into your Muslim faith, did you fully embrace it? As I said, I was four years old when the, they, they put me through the training. Before I go to the normal school, then I went to the Islamic school. By age of 10, I was what they call Hafiz al-Quran. That's been the one who memorized the Quran and recite the Quran. I was active in a mosque. My grandfather in a mosque was acting in a lot of gatherings, you know, when they families or special religious gathering when they asked me to recite a Quran. My family was proud of me and they were hoping one day I'd become a Ayatollah. And my grandfather then he tried to teach me all the different stories and I went actually to Islamic school for three years, you know, learning all the religious aspects. Not all of it, but as much as ten years old can learn. Wow. You had to be pretty sharp at ten years old to memorize and recite all of that. Well, no. The way you got your grandfather standing on the top of your head, he said, recite the Quran as soon as you make a mistake and he hit you with a stick, you'll learn very quickly, bro. Got it. Enough said. Let's go back a little bit and tell me exactly what is the Ayatollah. For people who didn't grow up in Islam, explain what it means. Christianity, you have some sort of system in the church. He's a pastor, then you go bishop and all the way out. Bayatollah is the one before the pop, if you want to call it that way, the pope. <laughs> and each country basically has got the one, the leader, whatever he says, they will listen to him. The rest of the people give him money, and then he's making a decision, what is halal, what is haram, what God likes, what the rule should be. Then it's a hierarchy, in, especially in Shia, it's a very hierarchy. In the whole Iran, we have like a four ayatollah. It's a very, very important rule. Wow. And usually the leader of the Iran 
is chosen of one of these ayatollahs. And if we think about it, it's got more power than the government and outside the Iran, then you know how important it is. That's amazing. Can you tell me, as you're growing up, maybe some pivotal moments in your life? You told some really great stories kind of about your family and growing up in Islam. But what are some other pivotal moments in your life that you remember growing up in Iran? Well, I think when revolution started for us, before revolution, we had democratic government around by Shah of Iran. It was part of freedom for the mosque churches and other religion to carry on. But I was quite a young man when the revolution started, and we were so excited because we're going to bring a true Islam and the power of the Islam, not just in Iran. So as Ayatollah Khomeini said, we were going to export the Islam to all over the world. And basically, that was one of the highlights in my teenage years. But you talk about being a child and then at that time, and have my childhood because I had to study all the time and it wasn't like a normal childhood. I studied and then behave as a holy man. I remember when I was 10, 11, like any other child, you dance to a playing game or anything. Anytime I smiled, then I love, I get to slap in my mouth. Holy man doesn't smile. And so memories I carry on. You know? Wow. That's actually really interesting because just the short time that we've interacted, I sense a pretty good sense of humor from you, <laughs> which is really interesting because growing up that way, you would assume that you'd be more stern, more serious, more stoic, but it seems like a good sense of humor just can't die, I guess. You know, when I came to Lord on that first encounter with Jesus, I ran all the way home and knocked the door. My mother opened the door. The first thing she said, what is wrong? Said, what do you mean what's wrong? So you're smiling. I didn't even know I'm smiling. I didn't even realize I'm smiling. And truly from that day, then I've been through a lot of troubles, a lot of pain and suffering. But from that day, I was a smile. Mm. Like, wow. It gave me the joy which is coming from between. That's amazing. We'll definitely talk a lot more about your encounter with Jesus. But again, I just want to make sure our listeners really get your background. So if you can tell me a little bit about some of the turmoil that was happening in Iran during that time. So, for example, take us like to the war. What was your role in that? You know, the war of Iran started very shortly after the revolution. Because when Ayatollah came, he proclaimed Iran as an Islamic country and he wanted to export to Islam to other countries, especially neighboring country. And the war started between Iran and Iraq, but very soon it turned out to religious war. Because you know, the both sides claiming if you die, you'll be a martyr for Allah, and especially Iranian side. For us, it was a duty not to protect the country. We thought we are serving Allah. And the other side, they are infidel, even though they were Muslim, infidels. Then we kill any of them, then we go to heaven. If we get killed, we go to the heaven. And so many young people, I mean, so many kids that died on a dead promise. If you die straight away, you go to the heaven. Wow. And it, it was a horrible war with over a million people got dead, killed in a war. 
Man, that's tough. So, but you yourself had like a role in the war or was that later in life? I joined the army when I was a young man. That was before even revolution, I joined the army. And when the war started, it was around 1819 and I become an officer in the army. I was a parachuter. Then I become a tank officer. And I was very active from day one. And I spent a lot of time in the enemy line because I told if I die, I'm serving Allah. And I was injured a few times. Then we just still got some bullet and sharpener in my body carry on. Wow. That's pretty in- intense. What did you do in the war? I know you said you were... A soldier. As I said, for the long time, I was a parachuter. Is then they drop us in the enemy lines and then blowing a strategic area. Yeah, that was most of my time in army. Then when I got injured and I couldn't do the long run and things, they put me as a tank officer. I was in charge with the whole regiment of the tank. And too many people under my command. Then when I got hit, and no more than I could be in active duty. I become a leader of religious department of the big part of the army. Actually, my job was to teach soldiers and officers about ideology, about Quran, about teaching the Islam, and also then conduct all the prayer meetings because we have a different prayer meeting every different days of the week. There was a guy then in the top reciting it and people they have to follow me just like a bishop in a catholic church that was my main job of leading the two three thousand soldiers in a prayer meeting the islamic prayer meeting got it so i mean you okay so you said you were one of the parachuters yeah did you pray a lot as you were jumping out of those planes because i know i would have been praying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> i still parachute okay. i still do it for the cancer research the problem is then that your understanding as a praying, as a Christian, is different with understanding mm, as a sure. pray as a Muslim. As I said, everything we do is because we are afraid of God and we worry right. where we go. And that's a different. If we pray, then we pray not to survive. We pray because we are scared. Or we end up in a hell or in heaven. We don't have assurance. Got it. Got it. In the last attack we had on the Iraqi army, which this is the day we actually lost 180,000 soldiers. I was hit by the bullets and I hit them in my stomach by the sharp mark. Wow. And basically, they pronounced me dead on the field. They wow. sent me to the field hospital and they said, oh, no, he's, then he's dead. Well, and they throw me to the, like a container, then a meat container because it was a field hospital then for the dead. And, and when they, Realized you know, the couple of hours later, and stopped movement in my fingers, and realized I'm alive. But they took me to the hospital, but they didn't have any hope to you know, survive. And I was six months in a coma, basically. You know, in the first couple of months, they wouldn't even treat me because they told there's no point because if they had other soldiers and other people, they could use the resources which they know then is a possibility to survive. Mm-hmm. You know. I'm so sorry. But six months in a coma, over a year in the hospital, I came out. And it took nearly two years before I recovered totally. That after that, I couldn't be in active duty anymore. I become what they call it, living martyr in Islam. You're martyr, but you live it. Living martyr, got it. Yeah, that's what they call it. Wow. What did you do to like to recover? Did you do like a lot of physical therapy? My thing wasn't a physical because as I said that mainly was internal, you know. 
there's so many pieces of my buddies be taken out and throw away. Then <laughs> I just had to take my time. And I mean, I still got the bullet, as I say, in my leg, then I, I got pain and things, but it wasn't much I could do mm. to just recover. Got it. Got it. Did that ordeal affect your faith? As I told you, then all my life, then I served the God. And up to the point to ready to give my life and take other people's life because I was scared of him. I was scared what he's going to do if I make a mistake, what he's going to do to me and what he's going to mainly to my family. But after the hospital, then I saw it and I got another life. I got another opportunity. And I thought, well, God gave me another chance. Wow. And I want to please him. It was no more question about being scared. I wanted to please him. I wanted to make sure he's happy with me. Mm. If I die next time, then I want to I know he's happy. And then it was more personal request than to make him happy and make him pleased with me. Mm. I mean, it, it was, that was a different. And for that, I've become a very, very fanatic Muslim. If normal people prayed five times a day, I prayed you know, 20 times a day. I used to say, wake in the night and pray. And then you know, doing all the religious things we have to do more than other people. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like you decided you want to do more. What else did that look like? Tell us about that. I, I want, as I said, I wanted to please him. It wasn't a bad thing. You know, just, I had a good estate in the city. Now I'm a living martyr. You know, they, they give me my own mask. They give me an important job you know, in the army and all of those things. But personally, I wanted, as I said, I wanted to make sure is pleased with me. And that's why then I had a lot of prayer meeting. I was teaching a lot of young people about it in Islam outside my work. And then I used to pray a lot. I used to fast a lot. I used to cry a lot because then the more I did, I wasn't sure, is this enough? Is he happy? What will happen to me if I die now? Then it's not an easy place to be. Got it. So what was your opinion or even perspective on Christianity and Christians during this point in your life? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. But <laughs> what happened actually to attract my attention in, in one of the cities which I was working and teaching, teaching Muslim you know, young people about Christianity. And in that city, we had a lot of Catholic and Orthodox Christian living. Then one day I was reading this Islamic book, and in this Islamic book it says, you know, if we convert one of these Christians to the Islam, or one Jew to Islam, one non-Muslim to the Islam, it's like going to Mecca seven times, which for us as a Muslim going to the Mecca, because every time you go to Mecca, God will forgive some of your sin. And I thought that's a great opportunity to, to gain the favor of God. And... I had to read and I have to understand more about the Christianity. That's why I study the Islamic book against the Christianity. Mm. And my grandfather was helping me with that. Got it. That's my first encounter with the Christianity. Wow. So I would just say, how did your grandfather feel about like helping you? I went to my grandfather because, you know, as I said, he was proud of me, especially then. 
And I said to him, listen, I read this book in Islamic book. I want to convert this Christian. He said, yes, very good, very good. And he gave me a lot of Islamic book. And he said, okay, then we can't read this and find a fault with the Bible and find a fault with the Christian, which I studied them. But the thing was these books, you know, it wasn't good enough to go to some young Christian and say, come become a Muslim. Because they had all the things they said, it was so silly. Then it wasn't logical, even though I didn't read the Bible, but I told them it's not good enough to convert these people. And the first time I, I told them, okay, I read some book, I read some book, Bertrand Russell and other writers, you know, the foreign writers against the Christianity. I said, again, it's not good because they were written in different way. They, they're not spiritual books. And you know? Bertrand Russell wrote, why I'm not a Christian? But he was an atheist, but I wanted to convert these people to the Islam, not to take them away from God, you know. Mm. Then I decided to read the Bible. I thought maybe if I read the Bible, I find a fault with it, then it's easier to convert these people. And I went to my grandfather. And I remember he was sitting in a mosque in a high chair. And I said, you know, Grant, what I'm doing, I'm trying to convert these people to the Islam. And he said, very good, very good. I said, that this book you give me is no help. Then I read other books, it's no help. I'm trying to read the Bible and find the fault with it. And my grandfather was a big man. Hmm. Suddenly all the blood came to his face and he started shouting at me, don't touch that book. Oh, wow. It's a very dangerous book. And I believe that's the only true word he said in all his life, you know. Bible wow. is very dangerous. I didn't listen to it. Hmm. I went up, bought a Bible in Black Market and I started reading it. Wow. So then what happened after that point in your journey, you're trying to find God, you're trying to figure out these answers that you have. Clearly, you have a lot of questions and you're looking to please God. I guess, what was that next step after you found the Bible? The first day I got a Bible, I took it home. I told you I got it in black market. I took it home. I washed up in Islamic way. I asked Allah to forgive me for reading a Bible, explain for him why I want to read the Bible. Then I pick up two handkerchiefs because I didn't want to touch a Bible. And I just took it up and like touching something dirty, used the handkerchief to open the Bible and then I opened the page. The first thing I read was John 4. Wow. John 4 is conversation between Samaria woman and Jesus. It was so amazing, you know. Jesus said to her, you know, why she tried to make excuses? We worship here, there. And Jesus said, you know, it comes a day, the true worshiper, worship a God with the truth and the spirit. Indeed, worshiping a God with truth and the spirit, nah, we never had that. We have a ceremonies, we have a procedure, we have a dinner prayer, which we don't even understand it in different languages. We have everything, but nothing. we never ever been able and we've been permitted to worship a God in truth and the spirit. And the spirit, no way. And I wanted that. And why it made me so angry, this word, it didn't say God, it said Father. And this word Father, it made me so angry. I'll find a problem with your Christian. Now I don't need to read the Bible anymore. They're calling your holy God a father. Mm. They don't realize who they're talking about. You know, they're talking about the creator of heaven and earth. I mean, Muhammad, at that time, he said, you know, he was so honored to be called the slave of the Allah. 
slave of God, you know. And then we killed ourselves. I mean, I went to war, you know, to die to be with a slave of Allah. And this Christian, they call him a father. Wow. And I find that's a fault. I threw the Bible away. I said, I never touched that book again. Wow. I went and prayed and asked Allah forgiveness for reading a book. Went back to bed. And two hours later, I went and pick up the Bible again. I kind of worship him in truth and the spirit. Wow. And that, that was a start. And that went on for months and months. I was reading a Bible. I was getting angry. It was, it was, this Bible was so unreal. Then you know, God loved you when you were a sinner. I mean, come on, how can God love a sinner? You know, we don't have that aspect in Islam. Then even as a good man like me, from the kids that I've been studying and serving in Islam, still then I would not even imagine God can love me. You know, they don't have that understanding. Wow. And now he says, God love the sinner. Well, I was reading, your son and daughter of holy God, and you don't have to do anything for it. Mm. Can you imagine then somebody ready to give his life, ready to take other people's life, to be a good slave, and fleet? You can be a son and daughter of holy God without doing anything. You just need to believe, confess, and repent. And the price is already paid. For me, it was very, very strange. I couldn't even understand it and accept it. It would be so easy. If that time they told me to have what you guys have as a Christian, I have to walk on my knees. So you were saying if, if they told you you had to get on your knees and crawl for 10,000 miles, you would do it? I wouldn't become a Christian much sooner mm-hmm. because I was doing something. It was too easy. And this war was in my heart. Inside, I loved it, what he says, then this Father God. At the same time, I know it, no one is good enough to call a God a Father. Nobody, no prophet ever had the right to call a God a Father. All the kings and all the prophets we read about when they talk about God, the knee was shaking. How can this Christian call a God a Father? Mm. And then I had this struggle in my heart. And at the same time, I tried to be, because of these doubts, not about Islam, but God himself, the character of God, this doubt started in my heart. That's why I physically I tried to do more as a Muslim, as an Islam, to please God, you know, to make sure he's not upset with me. That's why then I had more classes, praying more, then, and studying more in Islam. One of the things I used to do, I used to go to the area, unprivileged area, and uh, teach a Quran to the teenager. And usually I used to do it in the evening because that was the best time. And I got some teenager, then I was teaching him a Quran. It was back of the, somebody's shop. And one of them is, oh, come here, come here, mom. I said, yeah, what's happening? He said, oh, this Christian is outside in the shop. Oh, that's good. Oh, when I saw this Christian, now you have to imagine I got my student behind me and I saw this guy, he had a cross, a small cross on his chest. Hmm. I said, well, it's a good time. First, my student can see how much I know about Islam. Then I wanted to insult this man. Hmm. I wanted to insult him because I told him, if I do that, Allah forgive me for all of these doubts I had. And I insulted this man of God so bad. Hmm. And he just smiled at me and said, you know, we have a church tomorrow. Do you want to come? <laughs> Made me more angry. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it got me so angry. I said, yes, I'm coming. And he went. 
My student turned back to me and said, you going to church? I said, of course I'm going to church. This is my country. I give up blood for this country. This is an Islamic country. This is my city. We give a right to Christian to have a church in my city. Mm. I'm going to burn that church down. Wow. Sorry, we left you on a cliffhanger. Listen in next time to hear what happens next and how Mahmoud went from a religious man planning on burning down a church to burning for Jesus. Hey friends, thanks for listening. Did you know that today there's an unprecedented movement of believers in Iran? You'd know that if you followed One Way's prayer cast. Ramadan is about to start which means Muslims all over the world will be fervently praying and seeking God. You can pray that they would be successful in meeting the true God by joining the 30-day Ramadan prayer challenge. The link is in our show notes. Today's send-off is a prayer for Persians like Mahmoud. My name is Naji and I am from Iran. I used to be a Muslim and I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me for the Persian-speaking world. We pray, Father God, for the countries of Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Iran, Afghanistan, to have a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ was and is still today. Father God, we pray that you would bring dreams and visions to these people. We pray for salvation to sweep through these countries. We pray for the veil of deception to be removed from their eyes and hearts and ears so they can truly see you, Jesus. We pray, Father God, that as they're praying during namaz, as they're praying to Allah, that you, Jesus Christ, would come reveal yourself to them through your word, through dreams, through visions, as they are seeking and not finding the peace, would you, Prince of Peace, go to them and bring peace to their hearts and save their souls, Father God. We pray that the right people that are ready to hear the gospel would come across the paths of the believers and that many would in turn come to Jesus Christ. We pray that the tools and resources that are already in these languages, that you would Bless and multiply the efforts of the people, of the missionaries, and the ministries who are already there, God. Like satellite TV, we pray that at the right time, people would turn on the TV during Christian programming, and they would hear exactly what they need to hear to come to know the truth that will set them free. We pray that you would break the strongholds of addiction in these countries that are gone up so much, and that you, Father God, would set them free with the truth and knowledge that comes through Jesus Christ, that you would break every bond of addiction, that you would help the teenagers and the, the young women who are finding it so hard to support themselves and who are turning to prostitution. God, would you provide for these teenagers and these women who are finding themselves so desperate, God, and who are turning to these things, and would you save them in Jesus' name? We thank you, God, for what you're gonna do in this entire region. Lord, we pray that these people would sense your love, your peace, and freedom that comes only through Jesus Christ. 
We know you have a plan and we trust you, God, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to continue to pour out your spirit on these people in these last days. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One Eighty is a production of One Way Ministries.